every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the V8 Salute podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. Now, we had so many questions for our last episode in our Q&A segment that, well, they spilt over and we had to do another one of them this week. Aaron Noonan with you. Will Dale is on the other end of my Zoom call. Hello, Will. How are you going? I'm great. Uh, this These COVID times mean that we... Uh, see one another via our computer screens and hear one another via our computers, but uh, we are not sitting in the same place at the same time. This is a bit strange. No, we are well socially distanced at this point. <laughs> we are, we are. Uh, now, uh, Q&A has been, well, it always lights up whenever we open it up via our social media and our V8 Salute fans and followers have always got questions of all sorts about motor racing to get stuck into. So, uh, we may as well get stuck into it. We had so many last week that we had to cut them in half and, and do the rest of them this week. Uh, Jaden Aben asks, what stopped the sprint format that they were running in 20, uh, 2009 in supercars with the soft and hard tyres? Uh, lots of action, different winners. It was great. What's your take? We're, we're kind of going back there 11 years on. I was going to say it was great and it is great again. It is great again because, yeah, we, that's pretty much the format that we, we had. Well, we're going to have this weekend at Sydney Motorsport Park. Um, in 2010, they took the soft tyre and instead of just injecting it into certain places in a race weekend, they thought, well, this has been a great thing. Let's just use the tyre for the whole of a race weekend. So instead of mixing it up that way, they had entire weekends where the form guide was a little bit different because teams were, there were some teams that were great on the harder tyre. There's some teams that were great on the softer tyre. And, um, yeah, the, um, the process of just dropping the soft tyre in at a couple of different points of the weekend sort of fell by the wayside. Well, the way that they played the game, remember, in 2009 when the soft tyre, I think it was called the sprint tyre, you might remember mm. when it was first introduced, the, the, the concept was that you got one set of them but you could decide when you use them in the races. So if you wanted to uh, burn it up on Saturday, uh, go for your life. If you felt you could reuse it uh, to start the Sunday race, or as we saw with a lot of teams, save them up, save them up, qualify well on hards on Sunday morning. And then because you're in a great grid position and you've got them saved up, then ultimately cash in your chips and go for it. And we saw uh, a bunch of different winners who, I mean, everyone had the same opportunity to play the game the same way, but it means that, uh, and that's the format that we're kind of going back to now that we saw in the last Sydney Motorsport Park round where you compromised on tyres. Basically, you've got to eat, a part of my French, a shit sandwich at some point in the weekend, <laughs> uh, whether you like it or not, it's up to you on when you decide to eat it, but you've got to eat it. So uh, what we saw in that 2009 period was uh, quite often 
still the top teams got the, the chocolates and the trophies, but we saw the odd other team pop up and, and grab a win. Uh, and they were all fair wins too. They weren't gifted them because they were the only ones on soft tyres in the last three laps of a race and past 12 cars. Uh, but I really liked that format in that everyone had the same opportunity to play the game the same way. And, uh, and it did mix it up a bit, but over the, the round winners, for want of a better term, top point scorers, it was still the heavy hitters, but we saw the other teams rise to the surface when they played their cards the right way. And I think we're going to see a bit more of that. So once they changed, as you said before, to the uh, all-in soft tyre, I mean, in 2010, remember James Courtney had a blitz, Queensland Raceway in Winton. He won four races in a row that were exclusively soft. And I remember vividly, uh, whether it was that year and or the following year, probably more the following year, FPR struggled horrendously on the soft tyre, but we're pretty good on the hard still. So I think when we um, get back to this, but the the big key is having a big difference between the soft and the hard. If they're relatively close in lap speed and don't have the drop-off, then that's the problem. We need to have drop-off in the softs. For sure. You think back to when Michael Caruso was on the V8 Sleuth podcast a few weeks ago and he talked about how teams would just adopt altering strategies for instance depending on where they qualified on the saturday lee holdsworth would be would get his would get the soft tires that day and they'd put all their eggs in that basket and then on the sunday it'd be caruso's turn so it'll be interesting to see how teams employ that strategy the multi-car teams in particular employ that strategy this time around especially the big guns of triple eight and djr team penske yeah looking forward to it i think it's it's given a real mix and a blend to the championship that uh, is sorely needed. Uh, we're still going to be in a position, I think, where you see the heavy hitters, Shell V Power Racing Team, Red Bull Holden Racing Team. They will be the drivers with the most points over the course of weekends. But if we can mix up the winners a little uh, and some other people winning trophies, while those big teams are still scoring the most points for the weekend in all likelihood, uh, then it doesn't feel as bad if... Um, those top. It's the best of both worlds. Yeah, you're getting the best of both worlds. It's a case of those top teams are still the ones leading the championship. But when you look at the stat sheet of how many races have been won that year by different teams, different drivers, mixes it up and it probably will um, halt a little bit of that feeling of it's a two-horse race. Uh, Garth Maguire with our next question, Will, and uh, he's got, like many, a suggestion, I think, for who we should have on the podcast. Yeah, it's a really good suggestion too. Could He asks, could you please do a podcast on the Bowdens or with a Bowden? Of course, he refers to the Bowden family. Of course, David, Chris and Dan, who have a wonderful car collection up in Queensland. Garth says, I'd love to hear their story, how the whole thing started, when David bought his first collectible, how he got there, etc. And I'm sure I wouldn't be the only one who listens. And I reckon he's probably, I reckon he's right there. Oh, I reckon he's very right. They've got an amazing collection up there on the Sunshine Coast of Bowdens and having been lucky enough to uh, ha- spend some time at their facility when we filmed the Shannon's Legends of Motorsport series uh, a couple of years ago, uh, yeah, there's some impressive bits of kit in there. So that'd be a great... Uh, I'd really love... Obviously, we're in these COVID times, so us leaving um, to go anywhere at the moment is impossible when you're based in Melbourne. But I- I'd love to do a sit-down with them uh, at their facility in uh, in the future when this all clears up a little bit because I think it would be greater served doing it that way than as a, a Zoom call or a, a phone uh, interview because being among the, the metal that we're discussing would uh, would add even more to it, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And it definitely doesn't sound like you're just trying to, trying to get a trip up to Queensland and get <laughs> out of the cold uh, so, well, and hang well, out with cool cars. 
Well, normally we do get that trip out of um, uh, Victoria this time of year. It's called the Townsville 400. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, well, it's been delayed and hopefully it still goes ahead. Uh, it probably makes me also think too, we've had a lot of people and, and the Bowdens were heavily involved helping us with, given that they own um, some of DJR's old cars. Uh, our DJR car history book, we continue to get emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages from fans asking where they can get a copy um, of the 3000 print run. We're sold out of our allocation here at the V8 Sleuth office. Uh, I'm told uh, as we record this, the national motor racing museum at Mount Panorama, our good friends up there have about three copies left. And um, if you're online, I'm pretty sure Formula Johnson, that's the entity that Ryan Story and Dick Johnson have together. Uh, they have an allocation of books and I think they've got some left. So if you jump on their website, it's formula.com.au. Uh, that might be your best way to make sure that you uh, can grab yourself a copy and, and don't miss out on what has been a really, really successful and, and popular book. Um, Alex Lees is uh, with the next question, Will. He says, with the majority of the series having three race sprint rounds these days, which I don't think is correct, but we'll cover that off. Do you think the large amount of races and qualifying sessions dilutes the importance and glory of a win compared to having a one race um, style weekend like a, a Grand Prix in Formula One or, or MotoGP? Just to just to deal with the question itself, I don't. I personally don't think it dilutes the glory. I mean, I, I certainly don't think Nick Perkat felt any less um, overjoyed about winning a race because it was one of three across a weekend. So on that basis, I I think it's I think it's perfectly fine. Well, the other thing that springs to mind out of Alex's question, I've I've had a quick flick back through our uh, results archives here. Three race formats not been the norm for quite some time. I think 2015 we had them a lot with the the two sprints on the Saturday and the longer race on Sunday. But the last time we had, and not counting obviously the Sandown 500 with its two qualifying races on the Saturday and the various iterations of it's part of the championship and it's not part of the championship, which has changed a few times. Um, Adelaide 2016 is the last time that we had a three race round. So when we split the Saturday. Uh, 250k race into two 125s, which I hated, and I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Um, and who won that Sunday race? Uh, Nicholas P. Percat uh, is the webbed feet man, basically. There you go. Um, Loves a three race round. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I I do uh, maintain the love of the concept of a round winner. And obviously, from 2009 onwards, when it was decided for a podium for every race, he who was best over the course of a weekend hasn't had the, um, uh, I guess, the, what's the right word? The accolades, hasn't, the acclaim. Yeah, hasn't had the accolades uh, because the podium is no longer a best of the weekend, top three on points type scenario. It's it's each race. But, I mean, we've kept the stats on, on round wins across the journey and, it helps create a fact where the apples are a bit more like the apples than the oranges in that um, I think one of the common threads is we have a lot of people tell us that there's so many races these days. Well, the reality is at sort of 30-ish races a year, uh, we've had three race formats came in in 1996. So there were 30 races in the 96 Sprint Championship, for example. Obviously, they're all short and sharp, whereas we have longer races a lot more now. But uh, you'll never get it right in that you can compare every error or every year to, to one another. But yeah, I think a win's a win. And if you ask any driver, 
sure there, there are some that will come with a bit more sugar and a bit more satisfaction. But uh, if they got a trophy and they had a P1 board in front of their car, uh, I don't think it's going to matter to them whether it's a one race, two race, three race or seven race weekend. For sure. Next question from Luke Johnston. Are we likely to see any of the current Holden supercars and drivers at the Holden Revival at Bathurst later on in the year? And will this event be televised anywhere? Uh, I would think not, Luke, given that that is a Australian racing group event, the Bathurst International. Uh, the Holden Bathurst Revival is, in essence, a super sprint that they've put together where any Holden that is a log-booked car with Motorsport Australia uh, is permitted to have a run. So it's not a race, but it's a, a super sprint. So they're setting lap times um, with a, a bunch of cars on the track at any one time. I think there's there's a bunch of ex-supercars that have either already entered or talked about entering, and we covered one of them off uh, a little while ago on the V8 Sleuth website. Terry Hamilton, who owns one of the ex-GRM Commodores VEs that he's been driving in Victorian sports sedans, is going to take that car up there. And there's a few Group C cars and, and various others, but I cannot imagine any... Um, Holden Supercars current teams heading there with any of their current cars, given the calendar that they've got going on and the the scheduling and, of course, the political elements. It's not a Supercars event, so uh, I wouldn't expect to see them there at all. Uh, I presume that there'll be an element of it covered in some way, shape or form in the Channel 7 telecast of that event, whether it's a, uh, a colour story or a highlights package or a bit of time on air. I'm not quite sure. I'm... I'm um, I haven't been in discussions with ARG about whether there's any intent there, but um, yeah, we'd love to see some of those cars run around the mountain, even if it is for a couple of minutes in that broadcast. I think that'd be pretty cool. Every lap in under a minute, every move made to matter, every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth, every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars. Unforgettable. Uh, next question is for you, Will. Gavin Carr. Uh, Carr with, a, with double R, not one R. So it's Carr. Uh, is the sport getting too predictable? And I think he means supercars. Uh, like... And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. This is what he says. I mean, we all want our favourite driver to win, but watching the same old outcome is getting very boring. Now, I can only presume he's talking about supercars. Uh, I could see how he could be talking about Formula One. Uh, <laughs> but supercars, yeah, they're, they're, there's always been that sense of it can get too predictable sometimes here and there. But I think the, the format change for City Motorsport Park, the tyre degradation... Uh, the hard and softs for the next Sydney Motorsport Park round uh, coming up this weekend uh, probably should tweak that enough, don't you think? Well, to be honest, to be honest, Gav, if um, if you could have told me before the last race event that Nick Perkout was going to win the middle race and predict that, um, I would have happily laid some money down on that and <laughs> made made a small fortune. Yes, uh, I think you could have bought three houses if you'd uh, gone down uh, and doubled up really big. Uh, mm. Uh, that's the thing, I guess, and we discuss this in the office quite regularly. There is no way, no matter the uh, race category, track, uh, race length, tyres, there's no way you'll ever guarantee a barn burner race. So uh, sometimes you'll get a dud, sometimes you'll get a cracker, and it's uh, 
uh, you've got to go through some of the duds to get the crackers. So uh, there's no the sport, way. It. The sport also often gets a bit of a clip for trying to make changes to improve the show and having unintended consequences from it. And credit where credit's due, the format reintroduce or introducing the format that they have has worked quite well so far. So fair play to them. Well done. True. Uh, John Stryker is um, it's a pretty long question here, but uh, I think it relates to archive racing, vision, DVDs and the like. So we might split this one up a little bit, but um, it's probably a good time before we ask the question to remind everybody that we do uh, retail the seven sport magic moments of motorsport DVDs and the 1992 two is 1000, the full race telecast from go to woe, including all the ad break vision, uh, and I think I might even have a HQ support race on there as well from race. <laughs> uh, is now uh, ready. We're, we're about to get this week our uh, pre-order stock. So if you haven't ordered one, jump on our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Uh, it's a ripper. Of course, it's the famous last of the Group A era 1000s, Jim Richards' infamous You're All a Pack of Arseholes podium speech is included for those who keep asking. Uh, and it's a case of... Um, the latest of the full Bathurst races that we've released over the last six, seven, eight years. So that's one that you can uh, pre-order now. Well, it's pretty much past pre-order stage now because we've got some stock floating in this week. So uh, yeah, jump on the website and order one of those. But I think John Stryker's question is relating to uh, non-Bathurst vision by the sounds of things. Yeah, correct. John's asking how much footage still exists in the archives of Channel 7 and the ABC of Australian Touring Car Championship races prior to 1983. For instance, and he lists a few examples here. For instance, Racing Car News Magazine reports of the time mention live coverage of races like the 1978 Australian Touring Car Championship round at Amaru, the, um, the 79 Touring Car Championship decider at Adelaide, and Dick Johnson also credits watching Gary Wilmington's performance in the 1980 season opener at Simmons Plains live on television as his inspiration for building his first XD. So um, do you, as, as the sleuth of all things old touring car racing related, what do you know? Uh, I know that there's, uh, well, from a Channel 7 archive perspective, anything pre-83 is very, very, very minimal. Um to the point of, of not much being there. Having said that, there were rounds, particularly Sydney-based rounds, that uh, Channel 7 covered in the 80s and the 70s. Uh, but from what I've seen and what I can find, there's no real vision of them uh, left floating around uh, in the archive. There might be a handful of bits. The other thing that I'm keen to try to have a look at um, down the track is the news archives. Because if there's not the full race coverage uh, sometimes you might find at least a news um, story from the news bulletin that evening. So uh, he's mentioned of some of those races, uh, 78 Amaru, uh, there is vision. We have vision of that race uh, from Channel 7, uh, which was saved off some old Umatic uh, formatted tapes that uh, our, um, our good mates at Chevron Marketing Services, John Kittle and his team, uh, who put together these DVDs that we work with on, um, they were the old Umatic tapes that we have actually released some vision from them in the past that were stored at the Australian Racing Drivers Club that uh, we managed to get them saved and uh, transferred to digital. So there is some 78 Amaru. So uh, at one point we could release some of that down the track. 79 Adelaide International Raceway, that was an ABC event. And I have got on DVD a copy a fan has sent me off a VHS tape. Uh, it, it's certainly not... Um, 
it's probably not a good enough quality broadcast wise to release on DVD, but I must admit the ABC archive digs that um, produce content for DVDs with the classic Australian touring car races uh, is a bit before my time of being involved with Chevron. So I've never been into the ABC uh, physically or a great deal of online search time to know what else they may have. I would expect from my chats with the guys at Chevron, there could be some 70s touring car championship events that uh, haven't been brought out that are mislabeled. Um, uh, they could have other labels on the tapes, uh, but without putting the tape in and getting it converted, you'll you'll never actually know. So, yeah, pre-83 touring car championship round stuff is quite rare. So uh, it won't stop me from trying to find some more of it, though, that's for sure. But I think John's also got a, a part of his question that he's asked to what chance of Channel 9's coverage of the Winfield Triple Challenges from 92 to 95 coming to a future release of a classic Australian motorsport, which is a sort of a subset of DVDs that we've released that uh, for things that maybe aren't Channel 7 um, archive. Uh, we did follow this up with Channel 9 in recent times and ask about master copies of those broadcasts, which you probably will remember, Will, um, from my memory, they split the telecast, didn't they, where they would show the touring cars and the bikes in one program and the drags in their own program maybe the week later. Is that how it, it was It was done? Yeah, well, the first one I remember watching as a kid, which I'm pretty sure still have on tape at home, yeah, the touring car and the bike races were shown on one weekend and if it wasn't the next weekend, it might have been two weeks later, they showed all the drag racing, So, which was how things were done back then. No live, No live broadcast. Yeah, I mean, those were the days, weren't they, where uh, post-produced and uh, on the next week or a week after was was kind of the norm for a lot of events outside of Bathurst and uh, the Touring Car Championship stuff. But sadly, the original broadcast tapes aren't at Channel 9 or, or we were told they weren't there. Maybe they might be tucked away under a... A, a vault somewhere in there that people haven't got labeled in their system. And, and, and it brings me to a point, which I actually caught this on m uh, Monday night uh, earlier this week. I'm not sure if you saw it too. The Beatles concert, and we're going to the music realm here. You'll like this. Um, I'm not sure if you saw this. I did. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles performed in Melbourne in 1964. Channel nine had the rights to uh, record. It was only a very short gig, I think 20 odd minutes at festival hall uh, but they have dug out that vision, remastered it, uh, both the audio and the vision, and put it together with some other archive material of the Beatles' trip to Australia in 64. And they produced a, an hour or so TV special on Monday night, which uh, I thought was brilliant. So you never know what's tucked away in the vault that people haven't wheeled out. And I, th I looked at my calendar and thought, well, it's not an anniversary. It's not 2014, 2024 for 1964 was a case of they found something cool, dusted it off, um, gave it a birthday and actually made some prime time uh, content that I haven't seen the ratings, but I'm sure it's still rated solidly. It's proof that uh, stuff that's sitting in a dusty drawer at a TV archive can be turned into something cool. Well, we can only hope that they, the next things they dust off are a couple of Oran Park Touring Car Championship races that they showed in the 70s. Oh, now you're talking. Now you're talking, most definitely. Uh, Narell Morris, next question. Do you think the format from Sydney Motorsport Park will work at all tracks or does it have to be tweaked further? Now, as, as we don't really enjoy talking about tyres too much on this podcast or in the V8 Sleuth offices at all, but 
the format worked so well at Sydney Motorsport Park because of the level of tyre de- degradation they had, which meant that because there weren't enough new sets to just new sets of tyres across the weekend to just bolt, keep bolting new sets on throughout the races, that at some point in the weekend you're compromised. As soon as this format's taken to a track where tyre degradation isn't as critical, that's going to have an impact. So I think I think it may end up needing a couple more tweaks. Whether additional Park Ferme um, style in race or minimization of setup changes between qualifying and racing can be um, orchestrated or whether that will make much of a difference, I guess time will tell. I really don't reckon that the Park Ferme thing changes things a great deal from a personal point of view, but I think what would change it is... Um, and obviously this weekend it's a it's a, a blend weekend of soft and hard tires i think when you introduce the possibility that someone can qualify on a soft or a hard that's when you get the mix because it adds another variable and you give these teams and drivers more variables they're understaffed they've got less people at the races than before um as we saw with the last sydney event they're mega mega time poor it's kind of go out, do a session, come in. How does it feel? Yeah, it's okay. Uh, uh, they can't sit there for three hours and absolutely pontificate over their laptops and look at the squiggly lines. They've got a, a feeling through their bum of what the car was doing. Have a quick chat to an engineer. All right, we'll, we'll tweak this, we'll tweak that, go. There's no time to sit around and, and think this right through and apply all the engineering and all of the maths to it. You've just got to go and do it. So you add more variables with less time I think that's going to do the mixing up. So, yeah, having the ability for someone to go and blaze out and do a lap in qualifying on a soft tyre, but obviously take the newness and freshness out of it so when they start the race, they might not have that uh, A-grade performance or someone else decides we're going to just stock them up, uh, we'll qualify on hards and uh, we'll we'll run the softs in the race and and keep the freshness in them so every time we bolt them on there, they're a rocket ship for at least five or six laps. I think that's that's where you're going to get some variables. So I also look forward to any upcoming race weekend where Saturday is bone dry and the forecast for the next day suggests there might be a bit of rain and see whether anyone gambles on um, holding up, holding their softs for Sunday in the hope that everyone else burns theirs up on Saturday. You never know. It's possible. It's doable. Mm. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines? Some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. Sean Costa, next question. I'd like to know more about the Jesus All About Life racing team from Bathurst 2009. Well, Sean, that was um, 
that was the first year, I think, from the top of my head, that we had wild cards at Bathurst. Was it not, Will? Yeah, I believe so. And that car was definitely a wild card entry. Of course, um, Andrew Fisher has raced extensively in different categories within the sport. Of course, he's in touring car masters of late. He was a regular competitor in V8 Utes as well at the time, I believe, from from memory. Yeah, he was, he was. And he'd had a run briefly in the development series the previous year in uh, a Commodore, which was the ex-Damien White Wollongong performance car. Um but for 09, they put together a deal with uh, himself, David Cedars, the Cedars racing team, and they leased from Triple Eight. Uh, by that point, Triple Eight were in FG Falcons. So the old BF uh, had been around for a while. But the car that they leased was actually the Bathurst winning car of 2006, the Craig Lowndes Jamie Winkup uh, better electrical car that had been used in the following years in Vodafone colours. But as you, as you might remember, the, the Jesus Falcon in 09 at Bathurst, which they also ran the Phillip Island 500, which would point out too, um, had a couple of crashes. And the, the thing had pretty serious damage and it had to be repaired. Uh, and then I think the engine went within the first stint of the race on Sunday. So it was a very short, sharp uh, Jesus wildcard race day at Bathurst in the 1000. But uh, yeah, for a Bathurst 1000 winning car of three years earlier, for it to be leased out to a team as a wild card, I can't imagine too many teams doing that. I think these days they'd hold on to that car, restore it. Um, sure, they might be making some money off leasing it out, but the, the the effort that would have to go back into turning it around and restoring it after potentially it's had any mechanical dramas or accidents, uh, I think a lot of teams might not risk it, but I guess income is income at the end of the day. Yeah, it all depends on how many zeros are at the end of the check. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, uh, one of a couple of wild cards. The, the Greg Murphy Racing Team operated one for Taz Douglas and Sam Walter as well uh, that year in the endurance races. So, And that's probably, it's not a question we have in our podcast, but it's probably a discussion. We regularly get um, posts on our socials about this, Will. Why don't they open up the Bathurst 1000 to more cars? Why don't they let Super 2 run? Why don't they let wild cards? Well, I, I will say this right here, right now. Um, I've said this so many times. There is nothing stopping anyone from running. There is, um, there are wild cards for Bathurst every year, but what holds people back from running is simply money. It costs money to run a car, to lease a car, to prep it for an endurance race. Um, no one's stopping anybody from um, doing this from a rules perspective or from a um, a blockage perspective. It's a case of well, why would you go and spend all that money on one race when you're going to run in the in the 20th or 21st place? A lot of teams see more value from doing a season of Super 2 uh, than, you know, putting all their eggs into doing a wildcard basket. So uh, by no means is it being stopped. And, yeah, it would be great if there were 30 or 40 cars for the 1,000, but the, the possibility has been in place for over 10 years now for wildcard entries. And, I haven't got the numbers here right with me right now of how many there've been, but there hasn't been a great deal in the last decade. And uh, I think you'll find that it's simply a case of money. That's all it is. And you think of the fact that the Super 2 race at Bathurst is, has regularly been a championship race. You're not going to see a Super 2 team that can potentially win that race or be, be within the title fight in some way, shape or form. Step away from that just to run a Bathurst 1000 campaign Mm. And in any case, a couple of years ago, they made 
the Super 2 race at Bathurst non-championship in, in part to help encourage Super 2 wildcard entries for the Bathurst 1000. And that year, I don't believe there were any. Did, no, correct. Didn't work. Uh, and all it did was it weakened the Bathurst um, Super 2 field because there are a pilot teams who decided to save their pennies because it wasn't a point-scoring round. Uh, these, of course, were teams who were, were busy in the midst of a six or seven-round series. So to then find the money to do the series, miss the Bathurst race, but go and fund uh, a wildcard entry just wasn't feasible. So, And don't forget, too, that and I know we're labouring the point a little bit, but I'll, you look at the field of Super 2, you take out all those drivers who will become co-drivers for existing teams. So look at this year. Brody Kostecki, he's at Erebus. Uh, Will Brown, Erebus. Tom Randall, Brad Jones Racing. Jordan Boys, I'm pretty sure, is going to land an enduro spot somewhere. So suddenly you pull all these drivers out of the field. Well, who's going to drive the cars? Mm. No, absolutely. And then, and then it's not just... Well, we're actually kind of seeing it this weekend in terms of the combined Super 2, Super 3 field. It's not just the drivers, it's mechanics and crews as well. I mean, there are some teams that are operating both Super 2 and Super 3 that are having to choose one for this weekend purely because they run the same staff across both efforts. So if you're, so you, along with drivers, along with money, you need people to run these cars and it starts to stretch things a bit thin. If they're, if heaps of people are going to do wild cards out of super two in the 1000. Yeah. And there's, there's an interesting discussion to be had moving forward as to what can and does happen with Super 2, but that's for another day. Uh, Jim Ryan's got a question, and it's a footage-based question. Uh, what footage is available of the National Rally Sprints near Canberra that the ABC used to show uh, in the 70s and 80s? If I remember, Colin Bond and Jim Richards used to feature pretty heavily in them. Yeah, I've never actually seen one of these events, but I've read a, like I've read all the old reports about them. Bondy had his Group A Alpha there, didn't he? And didn't Kevin Bartlett do a couple of one of these in the old Channel Nine Camaro. He did. I think the flares were pulled off it, and um, I think it was the Toshiba Rally Sprint from memory, which basically mm. was a like a short, sharp rally stage of a I don't know two minutes, two and a half minute run. Um, kind of like a super, a super special is now. Yeah, that's right. And it was a, a half hour, maybe an hour. I can't remember. Uh, televised on ABC. Uh, yeah, Bondi, I can't remember if he drove his Group A car or if he drove the Greg Carr Alpha that became a rally car. But either way, he, he definitely drove one of those Alpha Romeo GTV6s. I think Jim Richards, I remember seeing one, he drove an Escort. Uh, it was kind of circuit racing stars and rally stars like um, Jeff Dick Port. Johnson did a couple as well. Yeah, I think Dick did some. I think Greg Carr might have been involved. Um, uh, they were pretty cool. Um I have seen some of the footage to answer Jim's question. We haven't released any of it on DVD, but I would reckon that there's some of that in the ABC archives that uh, we could use for a classic Australian motorsport DVD release somewhere in the future. It would be pretty cool to have some, uh, some more dirt stuff out there on, on DVD. Um, so yeah, totally possible. Uh, we could go hunting some more. Question from Zach Dowdle. With Penske and Andretti both being in supercars, can you see Ganassi buying a stake in a team or potentially an IndyCar race returning to Australia? Uh, no and no. Mm. I think if Ganassi was going to enter supercars, they probably would have done so by now. And there's not really been any significant noise suggesting that they were even no. like a certain way down the road of doing so. And I know there was a lot of talks about IndyCar 
canvassing a potential return to surface paradise. But all, of course, that was all pre-COVID-19. And I think that has unfortunately changed a lot of things for the next few years. And if, again, never say never, but I don't think we would be expecting that to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. No, I can't see Ganassi even caring about supercars. Um, what? Because Roger Penske's here for a reason. Obviously, there's a B2B element of his involvement here that's been very, very successful, as well as being successful on the track. Michael Andretti's a racer. He gets involved in anything where there's a race. Uh, so that makes a fair bit of sense. But for Ganassi, I can't see a business purpose here or... Um, yeah, why would he follow their lead? Where what, what is it? You know, he could race them in the states. That's where he races them anyway. So, um, and yeah, and I think there was a lot said in the last year or so about IndyCar coming back to Australia. But I, yeah, I never really saw or heard too much that was terribly concrete about it. Who was involved or who was having the discussions that um, made me think that it was a chance of ever happening. Not to say I wouldn't have liked to see it happen. I think those days of the Gold Coast Indy were were sensational. And, uh, of course, next year marks the 30th anniversary of the first Gold Coast Indy race in 1991, won by John Andretti, who sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. So uh, I think a celebration in some way, shape or form of that anniversary for the Gold Coast event, which um, obviously this year is not being held because of the the COVID-19 situation and supercars stepping away from street events for the year for obvious reasons. Uh, Hopefully bigger and better it returns next year and we keep... uh, Gold Coast Racing down the track. Uh, next question from Jeremy Duffy, and this is our Castrol question of the week. Who was the last privateer team to win a Bathurst and an Australian Touring Car Championship Drivers' Championship? We've got to carefully define what we mean here by privateer team. We privateer in the sense of not receiving significant factory-level support or support <laughs> from a manufacturer. Um, so in that case, I think we have to go all the way back to 1979 and it's Ron Hodgson racing and Bob Morris, their title winning campaign where they downed Peter, the might of Peter Brock and the Marlborough Holden dealer team in the final round. And of course they'd won Bathurst three years earlier in 76 with, uh, Bob and John Fitzpatrick in the L34, the, the yellow car that, uh, lives on and sits, uh, at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama at Bathurst. And I guess there's been over time... Uh, yeah, your definition of privateer, uh, you're, you're right there. Everyone's got a little bit of a different definition of what they deem privateer, but I think that's a, a pretty good summation of who you would deem. I mean, beyond that, um, you know, Dick Johnson, you'd probably say, well, he won the championship in Bathurst in 81. Um, but was he, you know, was he a privateer? Motorcraft came along later on. You could probably argue that, you know, DJ was a privateer in those days. Um, yeah, six of one, half a dozen of the other, really, on what you really strongly define as, as a privateer. Obviously, Brock's uh, team in the late 80s didn't win the championship, but when they won Bathurst, uh, they were HDT Racing Proprietary Limited. Uh, they were not the, the Holden dealer team. They were most certainly a privateer with no uh, no love from Holden. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's all definition, I guess. But, yeah, the Hodgson one is a, a very good example. And uh, I think you could probably, from a Ford side of the fence, argue that uh, DJR in that early 80s period as well would, would qualify. Uh, but, of course, it's dependent on how you, uh, you deem it or you term it. 
Um, so that's a damn good question, actually, because it made us think about it. That was, thank you to Jeremy Duffy, our question of the week with thanks to Castrol, because Castrol is more than just oil, it's liquid engineering. They provide the oils, fluids and lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider and every industry. Follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive competitions and much, much more. Uh, next question, Matt Kittle, and it relates to a... A uh, certain dude in Queensland, uh, Will, who has run cars with Castrol backing before. Uh, yes. Have, Matt Kittle asks, have you heard much in the way of a new team from Paul Morris Motorsports? Yeah, there's a story from Paul Gover on Race.News, the new website, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago, uh, asking the question, could this be done? And, and the dude was quite affirmative and it yeah, could be done. And, of course, he's got um, in his realm... Uh, guys like Anton Di Pasquale and, and Brody Kostecki, who would more than be um, qualified to step in to, to drive some of those cars. But beyond that story, I haven't uh, seen or heard much more being uh, written or said about it. But uh, nevertheless, anything that could get uh, some more cars onto the grid of the main game is not a bad thing. Uh, Craig Kondo has an interesting question, Will. Uh, what do you consider to be the holy grail of missing touring cars in Australia? That's a good one, isn't it? Because there are a lot of cars that are just flat, no longer around, but that doesn't mean to say they're missing. Like, for example, the 75 Bathurst winner, no longer around, but we know what happened to that as we discussed in a recent podcast. Um, we were talking about this beforehand, and one car that we were discussing was the 66 Bathurst winning Mini of Bob Holden, Rana Alton, which I believe um, got stolen. <laughs> Yeah, which is a story that Bob's told in in various publications, I think from outside a pub, from memory, um, and never to return. Wasn't there a Brock Tirana that got nicked outside the Lifco RSL? Yeah, that's right, actually. It was the ex-team Brock L34 that had later become the Citizen Watchers car that later on was converted back to a a road car. There's another one that seems to be gone forever can tell you that's not going to happen to a car of the future's era car, is it? <laughs> oh, look, I took my VF Commodore supercar down to the pub and what do you know, <laughs> someone's figured out how to start it with three technicians and get it going and drive it off down the road. Um, I think the holy grail of missing touring cars, two that spring to mind, and I would reckon it's, I mean, Bathurst winning cars are holy grail cars. The 68 and 69 winning Monaros, there's never been a definitive... Um, scenarios to exactly where those ended up or who had them or what happened. I know Muscle Car ran a story in, I think it was last year, about the 68 car with a bit more uh, information about what those involved at the period, at the time, think may have happened to it. But there's no one that's popped up with it to say, ta-da, here it is. It's the the legit rigidage thing. And and those dealer team Monaros from 69, uh, the Bond, Tony Roberts car, I mean, we've looked through a bunch of photos for the, our new book, Racing the Line, uh, an illustrated history of Holden in Australian motorsport, which, by the way, is out next month in August. You can um, get your pre-order in now. It is going to the printer next week. It's being printed here in Melbourne, and um, we'll have stock in August to send out to pre-order customers. And uh, anyone else who wants to put their order in, uh, ahead of Father's Day in particular, and uh, would be a good uh, last-minute Father's Day present for a, 
a dad who's a Holden fan or a grandfather or a brother or anyone for yourself, even bugger father's day, buy it for yourself. Um, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au it's 400 pages and it's packed full of uh, Holden imagery. A lot of it really rare that we've, um, we've never run anywhere before and packed too with words because we know there's a lot of words in it because we wrote them. And um, this is not just your normal picture book with a, a one line caption. We've written some really chunky captions to all these photos. So there's, I think it's in the realm of 50,000 words in this book, but we found some really great um, shots of the dealer team Monaro's from late 69, early 70 and trying to follow the license plate numbers was the, the interesting issue on trying to figure out which car might've become what, uh, whether I think there was a car Bob Morris ended up racing at one point that uh, Colin Bond raced a, a car in Queensland. Laurie Nelson ended up with one. There's photos of some of those cars in this book, but uh that 69 Monaro, I reckon, I mean, we saw recently, Will, the, the Sandown debut HDT Monaro that didn't race at Bathurst uh, be sold for, what, 700-odd grand. I, and that was sort of presented as the, the start of factory Holden racing in Australia. I'd argue significantly that if the Bond and Roberts car being a Bathurst winner uh, was rolled out, never discovered, which I, I don't think is going to be the case, uh, then that would surpass that dollar number comfortably. Oh, comfortably, comfortably. And when you factor in the two the two minorities we're talking about represent Holden's first two wins in the Bathurst 500, Bathurst 1000, the fact that success in that race is so much a part of Holden's mythology and its legendary, legendary status over the decades, surely they would easily be the most valuable cars, some of the most valuable touring cars in Australia if they were ever found. I've got a funny feeling that it's one of those things you don't have to worry about it if it's not going to happen because... <laughs> If it was going to have happened, I'm sure it would have happened before 2020. Uh, Scott Van Kalken, who's uh, a regular sleuth uh, follower and listener, uh, he asks, do you really think that allowing Super 2 and Super 3 to race together will bring more of the older cars out of mothballs? Uh, I, I don't think it's going to. But what it will do is allow both categories to continue on at some level of health throughout the rest of 2020 and also equally deliver a reasonably sized field for the rest of the year. And um, whether that does encourage other people to bring cars out, I don't know whether that will be the case, but at least we'll see them racing. Yeah. And I think by older cars, I'm thinking more, you know, VS Commodores, EFEL Falcons, that sort of era, but those cars have kind of fallen out of super three already anyway um occasionally they've had a run in the heritage class which still exists within super three for this year uh but it's really a case of running them together will there's no point in super two running with 13 cars um and super three or kumo v8 touring cars as it was going to be known this year uh with you know 11 or 12 as well uh, on separate bills i think in the past there's been moves to get the two series together or to have uh, super three um, be, be rolled in. I think in, in the past, the ways that some of those things were going to happen or be proposed to happen weren't quite right, but we live in very different times. The world has changed in the last three or four months. So uh, yeah, putting them together is more about um, them both surviving the current strangeness of the world uh, rather than uh, trying to find a way to, to run old cars. But it would be cool. We would not say no, because I would love to see a 93 build EB Falcon or VP Commodore in the same field as a car of the future, Nissan Altima VF Commodore or 
uh, FGX Falcon or something along those lines because uh, uh, otherwise you won't see it anywhere else. Next question from Daniel Sinclair. How many Nissan Skyline GTSR HR31s did Gibson Motorsport build? Uh, that's a good question, actually. And uh, remember that they that was the car that replaced the DR30. That was the six-cylinder turbo Nissan that originally was, yeah, not pretty, uh, not good with the gearboxes, as Glenn Seaton will attest. And uh, <laughs> we've spent some time speaking with Glenn and Stefan Bartholomeus, who's writing his book with us. Uh, has covered off quite a bit of that 1988 period where they debuted that HR31. And, uh, yeah, the old gearbox was a weak link in that car. And, uh, um, yeah, Glenn actually opens up quite a bit about that uh, period of leaving Nissan in, in the new book. And we'll get the plug-in for it now. It's, it's CETO, the official racing history, um, full illustrated uh, racing history of Glenn Seaton's time in Australian motorsport, 320 pages. He talks about so many elements of his career. It's coming together really well. It's due out at the end of 2020 and you can pre-order it via bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. The answer though, Daniel and Will, is four. There were four HR31 uh, Skyline Group A cars built by Gibson Motorsport and all four of them uh, still exist. So that's good news. That's remarkable. When you think of, um, when you look at race teams of the year and how many cars don't survive, and it's in particular those um, those Gibson Motorsport Skylines, given how many of them got crashed quite heavily over their over their lives. Yeah, that was... we talk about um, we talked about just touching on Glenn Seaton there. Um, he turret tested one at the Bathurst Media Day in 1988, did he not? Yeah, yeah he did, and he talks about that in the book and uh, how and why that came to be. Uh, but they did repair that car. Uh, Win Percy had a pretty significant shunt at Wellington one year when he drove for the team, I think in 89, in one of the cars as well. And um, commonly not known fact that people haven't stopped to consider. Remember that Jim Richards won the championship in 1990 uh, and drove the GDR in the last couple of rounds. So that helped him clinch the championship. But the grunt work for him that year was done in the HR 31 uh, that he drove, I think, for the first six rounds of the championship that uh, he owns that car. Jim's got that among his, um, his collection of old race cars. And, in fact, at one point at the start of that season when the Nissan World Sports prototype team were testing at Phillip Island, Julian Bailey, uh, of course, Nissan sports car driver at the time, he drove in Formula One. He was a British touring car championship driver for Toyota. Um, he had a test drive in that car. He jumped behind the wheel and turned some laps at, at Phillip Island. And I think there was a maybe some reports at the time that Nissan would run two cars at Bathurst that year and potentially have... Bailey and perhaps one of his Nissan teammates, maybe Mark Blundell, uh, come out and drive the second car. But ultimately, uh, the Nissan team focused on running one GTR with a, a T car, which became the race car for Sunday. But that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time. Uh, Luke Batterson has our final question of this podcast, Will, and we've uh, worked our way through a whole pile of questions. So thank you to everyone who's got in touch. We simply can't answer them all. Um, we find it really hard to reply to, to all of the Facebook messages that we get with regular inquiries. We try to do our best, but we, we must apologize if, if we can't, if we answered everything that we get sent, um, we wouldn't get anything else done. So we, we do our best uh, where we can. But Luke's question is, are you guys going to still be doing a triple eight book? Yeah, I think that's something we're definitely still looking at. We do have a lot of projects on the go at the moment, and Triple Eight are coming up. It's still closing in on a pretty significant success milestone in, in supercars as well. 
in terms of victories, are they not? Yeah, nearly hit the two uh, the two centuries of, of race wins in the championship. Um, although I thought they might have actually added a few in the last uh, round at City Motorsport Park, which didn't quite add to the list, but they've got another chance this weekend for a couple more. Um, yeah, we will at one point do the Triple Eight book. Obviously, we had plans uh, last year uh, to be pressing on with getting that book released this year. However, the world obviously changed and um, corporate support's a lot harder to, to, to get. And we really wanted to have Triple Eight team partners involved. Um, we've got a bit of a, a standing um, uh, chat with Jess Dane and the team that uh, we've put that book on pause for the moment with the view that we will pick it up down the track. Uh, potentially for a, a team milestone or when it fits into our schedule or when we get clear of this COVID uh, situation and the world returns to some form of normality. So we will do it, Luke, for sure. I mean, a triple eight book covering, I mean, it, it might be a case of whatever they race next with their next iteration of race car, a different brand, a different body style, a different type might mean that then we've got a full stop that we can cover the Falcons and the Commodores uh, in the one book. Um, one of the things that springs to my mind, Will, when we sat down and did the preliminary planning for that book, which we will do it, we will use that planning one day, uh, that of the 50 or so cars, or nearly 50 cars, uh, nearly half of them are car of the future era cars. So there's probably a little feeling that while they're all still an active entity and still racing both in the main championship with Triple Eight and other teams and also in Super 2 uh, and in Super 3, there's... Uh, you know, triple eight cars of the year are eligible there. Uh, it might be better to wait down the track for some of them to uh, wash out of the system of active participation and be become more collector's pieces or uh, uh, filter down the ranks than trying to cover them all when they're all still active. And there's kind of updates that would need to be, need to be had to the book almost every race weekend because the vast majority of the cars are still racing. That's true. They're not all sitting in Scott Taylor's garage. <laughs> He's got a couple of them up there. He does. <laughs> Queensland. He's got some good ones too, that's for sure, with uh, a couple of Bathurst winning cars of Craig Lowndes from 2015 and, uh, of course, 2018 as well, which uh, uh, is in the livery, though, as it finished in Newcastle, that one-off gold Autobahn car, yeah, which which looks amazing. Uh, We've got a whole pile of questions that we haven't been able to get to, uh, so thank you, everybody, for for sending them through. Uh, We're going to... We're going to get some uh, some chats in the can in the upcoming weeks with a variety of people who have been looking to catch up with in time. But the other thing, Will, that we're going to do as well, it's obviously tricky. We would love to do um, more sit-down, face-to-face interviews for our podcast, which at the moment is just kind of not really possible for us. Zoom's great. Uh, it's a great way that we can um, at least have some of these chats. We're doing it ourselves here on this one. Uh, but I would really love us to find a way to um, get more of those uh, chats in person down the track. So we might pause some of those people that we were going to do or could do via Zoom. Uh, but we've also discussed on previous podcasts taking a look at some categories or taking a look at particular types of cars. Uh, and we will definitely do a sit-down look at the Super 2 Series and its 20-year anniversary and some of the great memories from over the course of time. But I threw it out there on Facebook this week of what are some of the topics that our listeners and fans would like us to, to hear us go in depth about. And one of the ones that really sprang through was Super Touring and another one was VL Walkinshaw Group A Commodores. So I've got a funny feeling we might have to do those in the next few weeks. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I mean, that'd be good fun. Yeah, I think there's 
all sorts of categories, all sorts of cars. Uh, that's what we love doing here at V8 Sleuth is, is going through the history. If you haven't listened to many of our podcasts, go back through the archive and have a listen. We've had some great sit-down chats with a variety of big names of Australian motorsport. We've taken a look at some classic race cars along the journey. We'll do some more of that over the course of 2020 as well. Uh, I think we've, we've gone past our 50 episode mark now. So we've, we've kind of celebrated a milestone. We're pushing on now to get to 100, Will, and we've got uh, plenty of stuff left to talk about. We'll, of course, um, have another podcast in the next week or so. Uh, thanks again, Will. Uh, very strange not to see you sitting across from me in the office with the microphones out, but through the wonders of technology, looking uh, through the computer screen. Uh, thank you for your input, answering a bunch of those questions. And we should say to everybody, keep them coming. Uh, we will stop and store. What am I trying to say? Store and stockpile is what I'm trying to say, and uh, put them all together for a future upcoming episode of Q and A. In the meantime, back to work. You've got some more books to write. That I do. Talk to you soon. There is Will Dale here on the V8 Sleuth podcast again. Thank you for listening to V8 Sleuth podcast. With thanks to Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. We'll see you in upcoming weeks. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.